1: Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show. Episode 22. In honor of the great Emmett Smith. Catch 22 if you could. But you couldn't even though, would you believe he ran a 4.640 before he was drafted? Go figure. This is the un-undisputed. This is everything I cannot share with you during a a two-and-a-half-hour go-for-the-throat debate show known as Undisputed. On today's show, I will tell you how Kevin Durant saved me from LeBron James. And I will tell you how I have become addicted to watching one sport you probably won't believe and maybe won't respect. I'll also tell you about One traumatic incident that I suffered at the age of 10, which kept me from ever again asking for a single autograph from any sports star, and also kept me from collecting anything that ever had to do with any of the sports that I live for. I'll also answer your questions about LeBron's potential podcast and how it might relate to mine. And I'll also answer your question about why Michael Jordan has been the worst GM and team builder in the history of the National Basketball Association. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. Here we go. Think of one of those giant Apparitions, those giant apparitions that that loomed large in the Ghostbuster movies. You, you know, I'm talking about those 10-story demons that, that finally required the ultimate in pest control. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Even Ghostbusters couldn't help the warriors right now. The Golden State Warriors. Looming over their season, looming over these finals, is a seven foot, maybe seven story tall ghost of a man who you'll remember once upon a time was the finals MVP for these Warriors in 2017 and 2018. That's the man who saved the Warriors from LeBron James. That's the man who covered all of Steph Curry's unclutch flaws and who actually turned him into a bogus candidate, as I'm hearing now, for all-time top 10 ranking. Baloney. That man, of course, is Kevin Durant. I have been extremely hard on my man, KD. That was after he let the Celtics bully him into no submission, four-game sweep in the first round. But now... When it comes to what he has meant to these warriors, what he did mean to these warriors in the past, I'm going to have KD's back, and I'm going to bang his drum loudly. He deserves 1,000% of the credit for saving and making these warriors what they are today. Deep down, trust me on this, the warriors know that. That's why he's haunting their psyches. All through these finals, that's why Draymond Green, the team spokesman, keeps bringing up Kevin Durant in order to cut down his value in the past to these Warriors. Draymond went so far as to say Steph, when KD was his teammate, was double teamed seven times more than KD ever was, and KD fired right back on Twitter. From my view, that's 100% false. Go, KD, go. Do not let these Warriors discredit what you did for them, which was epically monumental. Let's look more closely, shall we? Here's what really happened. 2015, LeBron obviously lost Kevin Love to injury before those finals against these Warriors. Then he lost Kyrie in overtime to injury of Game 1. And all of a sudden, it was LeBron and Deli, as in Matthew dela Vadova, against the Warriors of MVP Steph and Clay, and obviously Draymond. Heck, I'll throw Iguodala in there because I'm about to get to him. Yet, yeah, LeBron James played what I have called the greatest three straight games of his career. I've never seen anything like that LeBron in those three games. And all of a sudden, uh-oh, Cleveland's up two games to one with game four in the King's Palace in Cleveland. And Steve Kerr made the most brilliant strategic move in the history of the NBA Finals as I know them. In that game four, he inserted, as you know, Andre Iguodala into the starting lineup to not only guard LeBron, but to make LeBron work a little harder on the defensive end. And did that ever work? Iggy flipped that final script right on its head. Not Steph, but Iggy. And as you know, Warriors immediately won three straight to close it out in six. And Iggy, very rightfully so, was the MVP. Not Steph, Iggy. And here we came, 2016. Now these Warriors were the 73-win Warriors. Most wins ever in NBA regular season history. And there they went. up Three games to one on LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love in the finals. And there went the Warriors' guts and glue. There went Draymond. Suspended for game five. For getting into it with LeBron. For loudly calling LeBron the B-word. I'll just say it, the bitch word, called him a bitch so loudly that it could be heard about three rows up into the stands, then went down and got tangled up with LeBron, and managed to kick LeBron in the midsection, just as he had kicked others in the midsection in previous playoff games, and enough was enough, and even though I did not agree with suspending a starter and a key cog for a finals team for a finals game, there he went. And there went Steph Curry. Second greatest finals meltdown. I have witnessed this side of LeBron. 2011 with the Heatles versus Dallas up two games to one. Those were games four, five, and six. Was that frozen one LeBron. The chosen one turned frozen one. That's the all-time meltdown, but this was close. This was games five, six, and seven. You want to talk about shockingly off-target. For the greatest shooter ever, he shot 37% from the floor in those three games. In the fourth quarter of those three games, only 25% from three was Steph Curry. Game seven in his house. Remember, two of the last three games in his house. Got to close the deal if you're that guy. If you're going to be all-time top ten. Steph Curry shot six of 19 in game seven in his house. Four of 14 from three. Fourth quarter, one of six from the floor and one of five from three. Last 6.05 of the game. Final six minutes and five seconds. Steph Curry missed all four of his shots. And LeBron and company stole a championship they had no business winning. LeBron said, thank you, Steph Curry. Back-to-back MVP. That's when I first started to wonder... Was the greatest shooter born with a clutch gene? I'm not sure about that. He revolutionized the game in the regular season. He was a blast to watch, inventing the Logo 3 in the regular season. But when it really counted, nightmare. Shannon Sharp on Undisputed constantly has told the story of soon after that game, Draymond Green fleeing into the parking lot at Oracle on his cell phone, crying crocodile tears, calling Kevin Durant, please, you gotta come save us. I'm just quoting Shannon Sharpe on that story. I'm not sure about it, but Shannon tells it often, so I'm going with it on my show. All I know for sure is that then Steph Curry led a contingent across country, a Golden State Warriors contingent, all the way to the tip of Long Island to get down on bended knee and beg Kevin Durant to please come save the Warriors. I have friends, longtime Golden State fans, a couple of them, who ask me, what superstar would have gladly sacrificed to get Kevin Durant? Well, n- none would have because none would stoop to doing that. Only Steph did that. I mean, all the greats, all the the top tenors, the legit top tenors. There's no way they'd say, "I need to go get another player better than me to save me." That's what Steph did. I got to go get a guy who's clearly better than I am to save my legacy. Because looming on the horizon was LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love again and then again, Collision Course. We got to go get. We got to go get this guy. People say, well, Dwayne Wade sacrificed for LeBron. Yeah, Dwayne Wade did sacrifice for LeBron to join him in Miami with Chris Bosh. But trust me on that. LeBron needed Dwayne way more than Dwayne needed LeBron because Dwayne had won A ring. Dwayne was called Wade County for a reason because He owned Miami, he had been there and done all that, and trust me, I know this from the inside out, he had creaky knees at best. When LeBron got there, Dwayne was on the way out. His knees were so bad from a bad surgery that he had while he was at Marquette in college that he was never going to be quite the same. He had risen to the highest level, he had led Miami to a finals championship win over Dallas and Dirk, mostly by himself. Okay, so yeah, he needed LeBron for the last hurrah of his career, but you didn't need LeBron to show him how to win championships. He'd already done that. LeBron needed Dwayne to teach him how to control his emotions and win a championship. So, as you know, Kevin Durant said yes to the Warriors, and Kevin Durant got annihilated on social media for joining forces with the team that Kevin's Oklahoma City had down 3-1 to in the conference finals. And for leaving poor little Russell Westbrook behind in Oklahoma City. I was close to that situation. I was out front with that situation. I, for one, defended Kevin Durant for leaving Russ and joining forces with the Warriors because Kevin was going into his 10th NBA season. And I knew for a fact that he had decided once and for all, I cannot win with that little man, my little brother Russ, as the primary decision maker for my thunder. Russ dribbled the ball up the floor. Russ got to choose every time. My turn, your turn. Mostly it was Russ's turn. And I ask you now, after you as a basketball fan, watched what Russ didn't do for the Lakers on the biggest stage he's ever been on this year, when he definitely turned into Russell West Brick, leading the league for most of the year in turnovers, the worst three-point shooter in all of basketball, the fourth worst free throw shooter in all of basketball. After you saw that, now do you look back on Kevin's choice to leave Russ and say, he was right. Was he ever right? And yet, don't don't try to tell me that Kevin took the easiest path possible because the truth is, the God's truth is, Kevin took the hardest path. The Warriors had just crumbled right before your very eyes. It had become painfully clear that Steph just couldn't do it. He had two of the last three games at home. He could not do it by himself. Looming was LeBron. So Kevin said, I want a piece of LeBron. I want to show the world that I can be the difference maker. I can lead this team back up over LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love in ways that they would have no no chance without me. You want to talk about pressure? The weight of the NBA world was suddenly on Kevin Durant's slender shoulders. And most people Trust me on this, I was really in the middle of this. Most people, a majority of people around the country wanted to see Kevin Durant suffer a long fall from seven feet tall right on his face in the NBA Finals.
0: Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers, the string trimmers, and more. Right now, save $30 on the American-made steel FS-56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS-56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.
1: Only a, f- a few Warriors fans were rooting for Kevin Durant because they loved him some step. And it drove, trust me, Kevin Crazy. That he realized a month in, I'll, I'll never even be able to approach how beloved Steph is in dub nation, as they call it. Nope, you won't. But here came that finals, and there went KD. And in back to back games in 2017 and 2018, game threes in LeBron's house, he out LeBron, LeBron. Kevin Durant rose above LeBron and took over back-to-back Game 3, 17 and 18, that changed those two finals, that won Kevin Durant bona fide, runaway MVPs over Steph Curry. It it was all about Kevin. And now, step back from it and think about what, what we're talking about here, because This only lately has hit me right between the eyes. Kevin Durant saved Steph's legacy, and and frankly, he saved me from LeBron James and his billions of blind witnesses out there. Because KD himself, really by himself, he wrecked LeBron's legacy. If he hadn't said yes to Golden State... To Steph and Draymond. Well, isn't it highly possible that LeBron wins two more championships in 2017 and 18? Because I think it's a done deal, and I think the Warriors knew it was a done deal. What if LeBron James was six and four in the NBA Finals right now? He'd have as many as Jordan. My God, save me! And. All I would hear is, well, he's got six championships, and he went to eight straight NBA finals. By the way, don't get me started, because if something hadn't occurred in Jordan's life that took him out of the loop, I know he was supposed to be playing baseball. No, that's not exactly what was happening. He was forced out. I'll get into that on a later podcast. But without being forced out of basketball for basically two years, then Jordan wins eight straight championships with eight straight MVPs. But don't get me started on that. But all I would hear right now is, well, LeBron went to eight straight finals and he's six and four, so he's the GOAT. Big bull-loney. Big bologna. I shudder at the thought of LeBron having six rings right now. So I, I publicly need to thank Kevin Durant for what he did. And after 2017 and 2018, as you know from watching Undisputed, that's when I started calling Kevin Durant the best player on the planet. He did that. Highest stakes, highest pressure possible. He chose to do that. He subjected himself to that, and I could not believe it. I I wasn't sure Kevin Durant, the thinnest-skinned superstar I have ever closely observed, had that in him, but did he ever. Now on to 2019. Kevin Durant was hurt. Pressure mounted. Steph Curry versus Toronto. Right on cue, games 3, 4, 5, and 6. Steph shot 33% from three in those four games. Then, as you remember, Kevin Durant tried to go briefly. Looked like he was about to take over the series, the finals. And he tore his Achilles tendon. And in Game 6, at Oracle, in Steph's house, Steph missed the walk-off shot, the buzzer-beating three that would have forced a Game 7 back in Toronto. No clutch, Gene? I was really starting to wonder. Now, hark back to middle of the... is actually early in the 2019 season. Game against the Clippers. Back at what used to be called Staples. KD and Draymond got into it over who was going to bring the ball up. Sounds silly now, but they got into it as they sat down on the bench. Remember what Draymond said to KD? Well, he called him the B-word, but he also concluded with, we won a lot of games before you got here. Well, yeah, Draymond, you, you won a whole bunch of regular season games, but you couldn't win the games. So the bottom line is that today's Warriors aren't nearly as good with just Steph as their quote-unquote superstar. Because they don't have Kevin Durant, the bona fide superstar who put them over the top in 2017 and 2018. These Warriors are extremely lucky to be playing a Celtics team with two young stars, two wings, who are just too wildly inconsistent to be yet called superstars or even to threaten to be on that level. Remember, Celtics against Milwaukee lost two home games. Celtics against the Miami Heat lost two home games. And this time, Steph alone doesn't have to face LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love. It's just the Celtics. So, the degree of difficulty is far less than it was in 2017, 2018. We can hark back, obviously, to 15 and 16, although, again, no K Love and no Kyrie in 2015. These Warriors fell behind by 55 points in a Game 5 at Memphis earlier in these playoffs. Th- these Warriors in Game 1 of this finals. Gave up a 48-18 run in the second half to Boston in their house. 48-18 with Steph on the floor. And in that game, Steph gave them a three-point lead with 6.05 remaining and then failed to score another point down the stretch. Where have we seen that before? No clutch gene. So these Warriors can protest all they want. But they know that seven foot ghost, that seven story tall demon known as Kevin Durant, looms over this series. That will be the ongoing narrative. And in the end, I want to thank Kevin Durant for saving me from LeBron James. Let's get to your question, shall we? Let's try Gary from Minneapolis is LeBron starting a podcast in response to yours? Interesting question. Well, wouldn't that be presumptuous of me to say that was the case? But, you know, Gary, now that I think about it, yes, I do presume that LeBron just might be starting a podcast in part, maybe in large part, because of my podcast, which is now really only 22 weeks old. I'm just educated guessing on this, but I believe that LeBron gets rankled by some of my longer form opinions that I'm able to express in this format because he doesn't have his man LaShannon Sharp, my debate partner, to interrupt me and to defend him. Now I can painstakingly, and I would think even more conclusively, expose LeBron's many flaws, step by step, level by level by level, and I can thoroughly annihilate any goat case that LeBron could barely make. So yes, I I believe that LeBron would, would love to be able to hype himself to his billions of blind witnesses out there to continue to bamboozle them by going solo for an hour on his own podcast where he can control the complete narrative on his own stage without those pesky reporters interrupting with those piercing yes but questions that LeBron occasionally gets when he's subjected to mass media interviews, but in the end, I step back from this and I think, can can you imagine back in the day, Michael Jeffrey Jordan saying, you, "You know, I I need to I need to do a podcast to respond to all my critics out there." What? I covered the man. I knew the man. I know what he's made of. He did not care one ounce, one wit about anything anybody ever said about him to the negative. He just knew. You could just see in his body language. He knew down to the tips of his toes that he was the greatest player ever. And LeBron is still trying to convince us of that. Take another question. How about Harry from Oakland, California? Would you accept an invite to be a guest on LeBron's podcast? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely I would. No fear. Bring it on. But it would have to be a home and home. i do his, then he does this one. He controls the topics on his, then I control the ones on mine. I'm open. Just tell me when, LeBron, because my guess is that you would be a little more afraid of me than I would be of you, but who knows? Now for a quick departure, a quick aside and a quick confession. I'm going to admit this publicly. I am addicted to watching women's college softball. There, I said it. As you probably know, I did grow up a University of Oklahoma fan, and my Sooners have been the dynastic powerhouse of the last decade or so in women's college softball. But my addiction predates my Sooners' rise to dominance started back in 2004 when I joined a show on ESPN2 called Cold Pizza and I started having to watch or I I would look at it as getting to watch every game ever played in any sport which started to be women's college softball. Even my wife Ernestine back in our early days of dating would walk in and say what are you watching? And I'd say uh women's college softball and she'd say women playing softball? Why? And I tried to explain, but she had no interest in even listening to my explanation, but she started to tell friends of ours or people we encountered, and she was talking about how many games I watch. She'd always add on, "He even watches women's college softball." Yeah, I I did. And I'm no longer ashamed to admit it and embrace it. I have tried to explain to her, but she just rolls her eyes. The skill level of these women in this sport is astounding to me. And obviously, I'm judging it in my mind's eye against the men's sports that I constantly watch. The skill level in women's college softball is staggering. Trust me, if you've never tried it, you should. The diamond they play on is so small that it's like they're playing on a coffee table. The the ball is on the infielders so suddenly, and the distance from home to first is so short that there is no room for the slightest of error, the slightest little bobble, or the runner's going to be safe at first. There's none of these leisurely throws that we see in Major League Baseball from third or short to first for a slow runner. Seems like all of them can run, especially from the left side. Every play is bang, bang at first base. And I'm addicted. I'm mesmerized. I'm I'm enthralled there's a whole new species of of hitter that's emerged in women's college softball called slappers, as in slap hitters, as in left-handed hitters who get a running start and then in the batter's box and just try to slap the ball to the third baseman. It's the equivalent of the drag bunt, of course, in baseball. And it's just extremely difficult to throw out a crafty slapper at first. It's, it's just too close, which brings me to my favorite part of women's college softball, the pitchers. The, the pitchers, to me, are athletic wonders. I have tried several times to approximate the way they underhand whip the ball. I, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I can't make it go straight. I, I don't know where it's going to go when I try to underhand whip it. And, and I was, trust me in this, I, I was a pretty good high school baseball player with a big arm. I played shortstop. I cannot do what these pitchers regularly do. And, and it would be enough if they just underhand whip strike straight balls. But no, th- these women, th- they're wizards. They can throw curveballs and screwballs, rise balls and drop balls and change-ups on command. They make the ball dance. And remember, it's only 43 feet from the pitcher to the hitter, so they're right on top of the the hitter. And yet, just when I think some of the great sluggers, like the great Jocelyn Aloe, my University of Oklahoma team, just when I think they're overmatched by a pitcher's 43-foot fastball, Jocelyn times one up and connects with it and launches it way over the left field bleachers into the night in ways that also astound me. How do you catch up with those pitches? How do you time it like that? By the way, if there is such a thing as reincarnation, I believe that Babe Ruth came back as Jocelyn Aloe of my Oklahoma Sooners. Listen, She's the greatest slugger ever in women's college softball and she's one of the greatest finesse hitters. What a combination that is. But in the end, what hooked me the most on women's college softball is the unapologetic joy with which they compete. I've never seen anything like it. They just have so much more fun than I've ever seen men have at any men's sport. Male players in all sports, have a lot to learn from these women because while their teammates are up to bat, they constantly do chants in the dugout. It's just so cool. I don't know where they come up with them, but, you know, our our basketball players, male basketball players, each have their special handshakes that they do with each other, and this is the equivalent of, and then in in the field, when a player makes a, a good play, she's not afraid to show how happy she is. And her teammates are not afraid to show how happy they are for her because there's no code to break. Everybody's doing it so the opponent isn't offended by how happy you are that you hit a home run or made a sliding catch in deep right center field. Everybody does it because everybody's having fun. The pressure is extreme and intense, but they somehow manage it better because they seem to have so much fun playing the game that they all love so much. So the other night, Ernestine sticks her head into my office late, and she said, w- w- what are you doing still awake? It's 9.30 here in LA. I get up at two o'clock in the morning, so I'm, my clock is ticking four and a half hours down to four hours of sleep, and I said, "I, I just can't quit watching because it's Texas versus Oklahoma State to see who plays Oklahoma in the, the championship round. And I tried to tell her, Texas is staging this impossible comeback on Oklahoma State, which has the best pitcher in the country, blah, blah, blah. And Ernestine just shakes her head at me and says, are you going to talk about this on your show tomorrow? Uh, no. Then why, she asked, are you still up watching this and costing yourself sleep? And I told her, I'm sorry, I'm just addicted. I'm mesmerized. I'm enthralled. And now, guess what, Ernestine? I have talked about it on my show, my digital show, my podcast. Back to your questions. Let's try Yanni from Washington, D.C. Whoops. How do you explain Michael Jordan's failure as an NBA owner. Okay, it is time to me time for me to be harshly objective over the obvious, unquestioned, undisputed goat. Whew. Michael Jordan has clearly proven to be the worst owner and operator of an NBA franchise ever. The worst GM, the worst team builder ever. So I guess we're going to have to call this Jordan, the Woat the worst of all time. Because he is. Quick lowlights since he took over the franchise. Three playoff appearances in 17 years. Ugh. Lost in the first round each time. Got swept in 2010, swept in 2014. Did take the heat to seven in 2016, but still lost in the first round. Michael Jordan was the man who took Adam Morrison over Brandon Roy. I tried to warn him back in my days on cold pizza. (sighs) Michael took Kimba over Clay and Kawhi. Michael took Michael Kidd... Gilchrist over Bradley Beal and Dame. Cody Zeller over Giannis. Noah Vonley over Zach Levine. Frank Kaminsky over Devin Booker. I'll even throw in Malik Monk, even though he had his moments with the Lakers, but he took Malik Monk over Donovan Mitchell. Wrong, wrong, wronger. So back to Yanni's question, Why? It's because the greater the player is, the worse he usually is at knowing which draftable players can and cannot play. John Elway could not pick a quarterback except that Peyton Manning knocked on John's door and said, Can I play? Yeah, sure. Michael Jordan's mentality is that everyone should be able to do pretty much what he did. And obviously, they just can't. They can't even come close. Michael Jordan was so supremely, divinely gifted that it's hard for him to comprehend exactly why he was the all-time greatest. It's why Magic and Jerry West tried and failed miserably to coach the Lakers. Why can't these guys do what I did? Well, they just can't and you can't coach it out of them. You can't demand it from them, they just can't. You're gonna have to figure out other ways that they can contribute. And so Jerry West and then Magic just threw up their hands. I can't do this. It's probably time for Michael to throw up his hands, but his pride's too huge. He's from North Carolina and he just can't give up the ghost. And yet the flip side of this is it's also why you see so many more Sam Prestes and R.C. Bufords and David Griffins who had zero chance of playing NBA basketball being far better at picking players than Michael Jeffrey Jordan ever was. These guys had to learn what works on the NBA level when it comes to playing the game. These guys were born with instincts to predict NBA stardom in draftable players. Now it's time for, let's call this a flashback, because the other day, I read about a -a one-of-a-kind LeBron James trading card called the Triple Logo Man, which could fetch uh, a sum of, what I read, $7 million when it goes up for auction. I don't know anything about these trading cards. I don't know anything about the Triple Logo Man because I don't want to know anything about it. It's not just because it's LeBron's. I just don't care. This made me stop and remember that I am one sports fan who is absolutely not a collector of sports memorabilia or pictures or autographs or anything in that realm. I will put my love for sports, my obsession, my passion for sports up against anybody's I'll put my hours spent watching games up against anybody's. I'll put my time spent talking about sports, thinking about sports, living, breathing sports up against anybody's. But I am not a collector of sports memorabilia. And I have never been a collector A seeker of autographs, not after what happened to me when I was 10 years old, I'll get to that in a moment. Now understand, back in the day when I was a kid, all the way up until I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years of age, I did buy baseball cards. They were called trading cards, yet we never traded cards, we just bought them. I'm not even sure I was collecting them. It's just what we did. It was always kind of a cheap thrill because I think in those days, if memory serves, this was a long time ago, I think we could walk or ride our bikes the six blocks up to the 7-Eleven at 50th and a street called Portland in my hometown of Oklahoma City. We could go to that little 7-Eleven, sleepy little 7-Eleven. I think we could buy the packs for a nickel And it was a cheap thrill to open the pack and see who you got. But it wasn't like, oh, wow, I got so-and-so. It it wouldn't last much longer than that. And it's not like, I'll trade you a Mickey Mantle for a Ty Cobb. I don't know. I, I didn't do that. I didn't think that way. In fact, about all I can remember about buying those nickel packs of baseball cards is that they came with this flat slab of gum. This is probably way before your time. Stop me if you've heard this before. But it was bubble gum. And it was flat because they had to get it in the pack to wrap the wrapper around. So it was flat, sort of a rectangle of bubble gum that was simply the worst tasting bubble gum in the history of gum. It was pinkish with, with sort of this this sort of silvery coating of sugar on it and it was brittle so when you bit into it it just it it just broke into a hundred pieces in your mouth so you had to kind of saliva up a little bit chomp on it for a while until it started to turn into gum and just as it started to, to to turn into a substance that you could chew it lost all its flavor immediately and it turned into the worst tasting thing that you've ever had in your mouth and you'd spit it out, and I would always say, "Why do they even include this?" So the first thing I did when I unwrapped the pack was throw the flat pink slip of slab of gum. I, I'd throw it in the trash. But I would take the cards home, and I had this box that was under my bed. That probably when I was like five, I got for Christmas. I got. A set called Fort Apache, which was out of a TV show called Rin Tin, Tin way before your time, but it was like a miniature fort, and it came in a box that was pretty big. It was like, I don't know, three feet, four feet long by two feet, fairly deep, so it would hold a good number of baseball cards because Fort Apache was long gone after I was probably six or seven, and I filled that Fort Apache box with my baseball cards, and There might have been some doozies in there. I I don't know. Fort Apache might have been my little Fort Knox, for all I know. And, of course, when I left to go away to school, go away to Vanderbilt, my mother promptly threw Fort Apache in the trash, never to be seen again, until I asked, like a year later, where's Fort Apache? Like, I threw it away. You were gone. Do you have any idea what was in Fort Apache? No. What? Just a bunch of cards that you didn't want anymore. Well, I I don't know. They might have been worth, who knows, $7 million. Like the triple logo man. I don't know what I had in there. But I do remember
0: that... Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details.
1: The first card I ever opened, the one on top, was a player you won't know named Gino Simoli. Gino Simoli who bounced around professional baseball, seven different teams, but that year just happened to be a St. Louis Cardinals year for Gino Simoli, which furthered my love for what had become my favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm in Oklahoma City, and it was in large part because in Oklahoma City, you could get what was called KMOX, 50,000 watts, out of St. Louis on radio. So every day, every night, every St. Louis game was on radio distinctly, completely clearly in Oklahoma City. I can remember so many nights when the Cardinals played on the West Coast, San Francisco, L.A., that I would stay up with the lights out listening to my Cardinals play the Giants or the Dodgers with the great Harry Carey and the great Jack Buck. bringing the game to life for me in the theater of my mind. So from Gino Somoli into KMO, excuse me, K-M-O-X, my love for my Cardinals exploded and... Summer after summer, we would go on a little vacation somewhere not too far away to Dallas or maybe San Antonio for what was then the World's Fair once we went to New Orleans. And finally, when I was 10, I convinced my parents to take me and my brother, my little brother, two years younger, to St. Louis so I could see a real live Cardinals game at old Bush Stadium. It was a fairly long drive, maybe seven, eight hours, but we did it, and when we checked into the hotel, which was actually a motel, the guy at the front desk said, hey, if you're here for a Cardinals game, you should go to Stan and Biggie's for lunch. Stan and Biggie's was the restaurant in St. Louis because it was owned by one Stan Musial and Biggie, Stan the Man Musial was the man for the Cardinals. You could argue even to this day, the greatest Cardinal ever, certainly Cardinal hitter ever, three-time MVP, career 331 hitter, still holds the record for all-star games played in 24. Whew, 24. And we were told that every lunch before every St. Louis Cardinals home game, Stan Musial worked the floor. He worked the room. He paraded around the restaurant, greeting people from all over who came to eat at Stan and Biggie's. So my mother said, well, we gotta do that. And I'm thinking, well, it's okay, but I'd rather just see the game. I don't have to to meet Stan Musial I was actually fairly shy when I was a kid because my mother was so outrageously outgoing. If you know I love Lucy, my mother had a lot of Lucy in her. Just that zany, audacious, try any, do anything, walk up to anybody at any moment and say anything. My mother was very pretty so she could get away with a lot because of her looks and she knew it. So... The next day, we go to Stan and Biggie's with my brother in tow. You have to understand about my little brother who was then eight years of age. The only reason he was on the vacation is because you can't leave him home alone, yet he despised all things sports. He didn't know, didn't care, and certainly had no idea nor any interest in who Stan the man Musial was. He just had to go because it was the family vacation, and I had sacrificed for his trip to New Orleans because my brother was already cooking at my father's little hole-in-the-wall barbecue restaurant on the wrong side of Oklahoma City, destined to become one of America's best chefs. In fact, he did win a James Beard Award, did my little brother Rick, for best chef in the country. And his restaurant in Chicago, called Topolobampo, did win the James Beard Award, the very prestigious James Beard Award for best restaurant in the country. It's Obama's favorite restaurant. And by the way, when Obama was first elected, he asked my brother to be the White House chef, but my brother had so much going on with so many restaurants, what was it then, three or four in Chicago alone, that he just had too much restaurant responsibility to be able to pick up and go be the White House chef. But he was very honored that Obama would ask him because Obama loved my brother's cooking. So this had already started, but remember my brother had zero interest in sports. So we take our seat in Stan and Biggie's restaurant, and I look up and I'm in awe to see the man walking around greeting customers who came from all over the country to eat at Stan and Biggie's. What? All I need, needed to do was just gaze upon the presence of Stan the Man Musil. He's there dressed to kill in coat and tie. Can you imagine today's players on a game day making themselves available at a restaurant for autographs and pictures? That's what he did, probably worked because it was the restaurant to go to and we had to wait in line to get a seat. So I told you what my mother was, up she jumps and over she goes to Stan the man, Mr. Musial. My name is, and here she goes, and she tells Stan Musial her life story and she says, could I please get an autograph for my two sons, Skip and Rick? And Stan, as gracious as ever an athlete ever was, said, absolutely, let me take your two boys back to my office and and autograph a picture for them. And I got to tell you, I was mortified. I, I can't tell you the depth of my embarrassment and my shame that the great Stan Musial was going to autograph a picture for my little brother, Rick, who had zero interest in that. I can't tell you how that tore me up because my little brother despised sports. And this man was going to take his time and waste one of his pictures and one of his signatures on my little brother. I couldn't bear the thought. I had so much reverence for what Stan had accomplished. I'd read his biography. I knew everything about the guy. And here my little brother was getting an autographed picture from him on a game day. It was just so wrong. And honestly, I, I never recovered from it. We went home and I had my signed picture of Stan. And my mother said, do you want to frame it? I said, I don't even want it. I'm embarrassed. She said, why are you embarrassed? I said, because Rick got one. And she couldn't understand it. But I don't know whatever happened